0: cycling a history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener in 1997 Bjarne rees won the amstel gold race no reigning tour de france winner had won a classic since Bernard eno tasted success at the 1983 flèche wallonne having won the tour in dominant fashion the previous year rees came into the spring classics with the opportunity and the form to emulate eno in the pouring rain rees forced the first selection of the race with an attack on the Cowberg climb with 60 kilometers left to race this left eight riders at the front, in a select breakaway full of big names. For company, Rees had the likes of former Amstel Gold winner Maro Gianetti and former Tour of Lombardy winner Andrea Taffy. The group were working well together, but with less than 40k to go to the finish, disaster struck as Rees had a problem with his front wheel. The footage seemed to suggest that he simply had a puncture, but Rees later revealed that he had actually broken the wheel. The Dane slipped to the back of the group where he waited for his team manager Walter Godefruit to approach in the team car with a spare wheel but the team car was nowhere to be seen. Reese rode on with his broken wheel and waited and waited. Eventually, Godafruit appeared and the wheel was replaced. Clearly frustrated at the long delay, Reese gave Godafruit the middle finger as he cycled off to attempt to catch the breakaway. Reese caught them in no time at all, and less than a minute later he put in a massive attack. With 35 kilometers still to go, the rest of the breakaway never saw Reese again as he crossed the finish line almost a minute ahead of everyone to win a Classic as reigning Tour de France champion. Reset said after the race, I had broken my front wheel and I had to wait very long to get my team car. I was angry because it took too much time. It was a problem because I wanted to change my wheel as soon as possible. I thought otherwise it's maybe too late for me to win. But I have a fantastic feeling now. After winning the Tour de France, to show you can win a classic too, that makes you a complete rider. It was a big day for me. I'm very proud of the victory because it shows that I've become a more complete rider. I was in exceptionally good form and was prepared. Bjarne Ries, he's a cheeky chap, isn't he? <laughs> to put it mildly, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I, I just, I, I put this in because I thought it was interesting for a number of reasons. I, I'm actually, I'm in the middle of reading Bjarne Ries's autobiography, which um, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit disappointing because he, I mean, he's clearly not telling you everything, you know. He even says in uh, the preface or the introduction or whatever it's called uh, that he won't be naming names. You know, which mm-hmm. straight away you kind of think, oh, you know, why, 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 should I bother if he's only going to give you one half of one side of this story? You, you know, is it worth it? But ah, it's still you know kind of an interesting read, and um, just in the context of the piece there that you know, Bjarne Reese gave the middle finger to Godafrút as he was cycling off when he got when he <laughs> finally got his wheel change. I'm just at that part of the book um, where Reese is. Um, the nineteen ninety seven Tour de France has just gotten underway, and uh, yeah, Jan Ulrich is obviously on the team, and he had come second to Reese in the previous year's Tour de France. And the, you know, there's a little bit of a power struggle within the team, and it's actually uh, Walter Godefroot who is siding with Bjorn Reese and the other team manager Rudy Pevenage is the one that's siding with Ulrich. So uh, you know, I just kind of thought it was an interesting, interesting uh, juxtaposition to have him. Flipping them the bird one week and then you know the the next their their
2: best mates trying to take on Ulrich and Pevenage for control of the team. It's funny actually because I mean I've got um somewhere on a a DVD a, a rewritable DVD somewhere I've got um, an Excel spreadsheet of the power fi- file from uh, Reese's SRM on that I'm still Gold yeah. and. You know, it, it was. You know, I'm a bit of a geek. I remember being really excited to get a power meter reading for an entire race, and he was putting out some hefty watts per kilogram during that race. I mean, he was clearly uh, testing his regime for the Tour de France. So let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, I
1: mean, like the last word I said in the piece was the word "prepared," which, as usual, comes with all sorts of connotations. And there's, I think, you know, there's no doubt that Reese was definitely preparing himself uh, during that period, and. um yeah, you know, if you, it, it, again this is on YouTube, the Amstel Gold Race 1997, and you know, you can see Reese catching up to the breakaway group and then just deciding to ride away from the front of them. And you know, th- they were no slouches in that group, and they were, they did appear to be working together. You know, there w- it, w- it wasn't like everybody was looking at each other saying, "I'm not doing anything." You know, they were working together, and they just couldn't bring him back. He was eking out the the seconds for the last 40 kilometer, last 35 kilometers. So um, I I mean it it just it was just pretty much a continuation of what he had done in the 1996 Tour de France, and uh, I I just thought another kind of interesting side point was that uh, just in relation to the Tours de France that Ulrich and Reese were involved in, that um, the last two times that two teammates have finished first and second in the Tour de France, so that would be I mean and, and I'm talking about before this year, so that would be Ulrich and Reese in 1996. And Eno and Le Monde in 1985, the rider who finished second won the race the next year. So, so the, you know, so that would mean Le Monde won it in '86 and Ulrich won it in '97. So, I mean, you're looking at this year's now. This is the third time it's happened in the last 30 years where Chris Froome finished runner-up to Bradley Wiggins, both on Team Sky. And then next year, you know, following the pattern, it it, it, uh, it would suggest that Chris Froome will. You know, maybe maybe not definitely win the race but it would suggest that he he would become the team leader and I think that's something that has kind of been emerging slowly over in, in the media in the past few weeks that Wiggins is maybe less interested in the Tour de France next year and Froome is very much focused on the Tour.
2: I think you're exactly right there um, and I think Froome would, for me is the only person who, who's got any chance of taking it to Bertie next year um, and he's I got quite cross with him during the tour with all these, you know, pulling pulling ahead and gesturing to Brad to follow. And it, that it struck me as slightly insolent, actually, and slightly disrespectful of the yellow jersey. I mean, not as much as it struck Scott, who was incandescent about it, to be honest. Yeah. But then during the Vuelta, and particularly this year, uh, towards the end of the year, he's talking in a more measured way and... He's coming across as a a kind of likable lad, so I think he will garner a lot of support in his attempts to win the tour next year. Yeah,
1: and I I suppose you just kind of wonder what's actually happening behind the scenes because when Bradley Wiggins comes out and says, "Ah, not interested in the tour," you know, I mean, is he just being flippant and aloof as usual, or or has he been asked to, you know, step aside and and, you know publicly declare his non-interest in the tour, but really? It's all for Froome next year. I mean, I mean, I suppose maybe these things will never come to light, but maybe one of the twenty odd Wiggins books that are coming out soon might might shed a bit of light on it. <laughs> but uh, I, I, and another thing that's that struck me, which we kind of touched on last week, is uh, you know, Bernardi he, he's just he's a renowned doper, and now he's in charge of a team. And we spoke about it last week in in the context of uh, Nicholas Roach, and that he has now signed for Reese's Saxo Bank team and. You know, is it really a good idea? And and it's been put to me, and it it, it is a kind of a uh, something that I wrestle with. That you know, why is Sean Kelly in charge of a team as well? You know, Sean Kelly doped during his career. He got caught twice, mm-hmm. and uh, you know he got caught twice. I'm, you know, is that the only two times he ever doped? Pfft, you know, probably not. And I mean, you know, Willie Voe was his soigneur. He was at the PDM team when the Intralipid affair happened. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of these things. So should Sean Kelly be in charge of a team? You know, I suppose it comes down to this uh, zero tolerance policy. If if you were going that direction, direction the team Sky has tried to follow. You know, if it ends up that the UCI, you know, after their investigation decide, right zero tolerance, everybody that's ever doped out. You know, you're getting rid of first of all, you're getting rid of Jonathan Waters, who is probably the most he's probably I think one of the best team managers for the sport right now I think his attitude is incredibly healthy he uh, he has obviously doped and cheated and won money that he shouldn't mm-hmm. have in the past but you know he, he's, he's he's come clean finally publicly he's apologised and now he, he to me he's clearly doing the, the, the managing his team the only viable way I, I can see and that are, he, he knows that riders have made mistakes but now on my team that's it this is this is the way we are now and going forward and and that I, I think that's the only way it can be and for the moment i mean i mean there's there's never been any suggestion that sean kelly has been doping his riders on the on post sean kelly team i mean i think that's fair no. to say i you know if, if if ever there is a day that that happens obviously I, that's deplorable but you know, there there definitely is suggestions that Bjarne Reese has been doping his riders. I mean, it's quite clear from reading Tyler Hamilton's autobiography that that is the case. So, and mm-hmm. and like, you know, I mean, when I get asked about this, you know, as an Irish man with Sean Kelly as the head of 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 what is essentially an Irish team, you know, it's not just it's not just me sitting at home being Irish with a green jersey on cheering the the, the team because they're Irish. It, it it's it's a little bit deeper than that. In that you know, he he's the head of an Irish team that provides riders from Ireland, from around my neck of the woods. You know, mm-hmm. you know, d- d- deep down t- to the level of the local cycling, it affects the local cycling team that this is the actual avenue they can take into professional cycling. And if Sean Kelly was to be caught doping his riders, or if the UCI decide they're having a a, an, a zero tolerance policy and Sean Kelly has to leave the team. And stop lending his name to the team, which is a major reason why they get invited to races. Then that's that affects a, a big tree of people filtering down all the way down to your local club. So it's not just because we happen to be born in the same place; it's because we happen to be born in the same place, and it it it, it affects uh, it affects the the local community effectively.
2: Yeah, right down right down to the very grassroots.
1: Yeah. So you know it it. it um, it is something to wrestle with uh but you know ma- maybe a danish guy would have a similar uh attitude towards reece i mean he's the head of a of the the biggest danish team in cycling uh you know so if if Ries was to to have to leave the sport which he may well have to i mean the anti doping agency in denmark announced only a couple of days ago that they will be investigating Ries, uh thoroughly finally. Mm-hmm. And you know, he he may have to walk away in which case I can't imagine the Saxo Bank team lasting because he's not only the manager, I think he's the owner of that team as well or at least part yeah, part of it. And uh, you know, that would I have no doubt that would deeply affect cycling in Denmark. So, you know, you know, maybe 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 I do have green tinted spectacles on, but you know, for, for a reason.
2: It's funny actually. I mean, I always I always um, I always find it almost uncomfortable to listen to when you listen to you know, th- Pros from a previous era, we've talked about this before. You know, Stephen Roach or Sean Kelly, um, any of them, in fact, t- trying to talk about doping and, and sounding like they're uh, you know cleaner than clean. It's funny. I mean, one of the things that people often say to me is, you know, oh, but cycling's always been dirty. You know, there's always been dope. And again, we've talked about it in the past. That's true. You know, right back to the very earliest days in the sport. But for me, the EPO thing just changed everything. I mean, when you talk about. Uh, Reese's attack in, in the Amstel Gold being effortless. And the year before, you know, that show in Otacam, where he drifted back to look and his rivals in the face and then took off like a bat out of hell. It's effortless in a different way to Bernardino catching the group after he'd fallen in Roubaix and then powering away. You know, there you see guys working really hard. And the drugs then were more about recovery or, or, or polish, whereas EPO just changed the game, you know, you had the guys doing 30 kilometers an hour up a mountain with their mouths shut so I think it is different from the days of Sean Kelly and well, the like.
1: Well, I, I suppose as well I mean, you have to wonder, like, Sean Kelly and, uh, you know, he stopped racing in 1994 as did Greg LeMond, and it's funny I, I actually, just by coincidence I was looking at a YouTube video of uh, an interview with Greg LeMond at the 2008 Tour de France where he spoke at length about this subject, and, you know, he, he kind of said that, uh, he wasn't really faced with the choice to use EPO. It, it was it was kind of you know it was only kind of coming in, and he he wasn't really given this big decision to use this drug, which was completely undetectable and unbelievable in terms of the results you, you go through. And what he said was he would hope he had the strength to turn that drug down. And I mean, I suppose you would have to wonder about all the lads in the seventies and the eighties. I mean, if they were taking amphetamines and you know pot bells or whatever else they were doing. You know they probably would have done EPO as well. So you know, I, I it might be slightly self-serving to say to for for anybody from before the EPO era to say, oh well, you know you know I didn't do EPO, but you know they probably would have.
2: Yeah, completely. Anyway, let's move on because we've. Uh... We've already gone longer than I thought we would go for the entire show. I mean, I, I've got a terrible cold, and I thought, well, you know, we'll knock it out quickly. And as ever, once we get talking, dear God, try and stop us, eh? Um, we just mentioned there Stephen Roach, and this is uh, this is a tale of 1987. In 1987, Stephen Roach almost won the green jersey in the Tour de
0: France. By the final stage, Roach had already sewn up the yellow jersey. His oxygen-deprived display on the climb to La Plan kept him within touching distance of the yellow jersey wearer Pedro Delgado. Coming into the final time trial on the penultimate stage, Roach was in second place overall just 21 seconds behind Delgado. But over 38 kilometers around Dijon, Roach used his time trialling skills to perfection, as Delgado just didn't cut the mustard as he conceded over a minute to the Irishman. But at the podium presentation after the final time trial, Roach didn't just pull on the yellow jersey. His second place finish on the stage behind Jean-Francois Bernard, along with his consistent finishing throughout the race, meant that Roach also pulled on the green jersey as points classification leader, with just the final stage finish on the Champs-Élysées to come. He held a 17-point lead over the Dutch sprinter Jean-Paul Van Poppel, and was one stage away from emulating Eddie Merckx and Bernardino as the only riders to have won the yellow jersey and the green jersey in the same year. Roach had this to say about the situation he found himself in. A quantum rider was second behind me by a few points, and at this time there was war between quantum and Panasonic. I had the choice of letting the green jersey go, or taking the risk that they would attack all day and split it up. If that happened, I might have lost the yellow jersey as well. So I said to Yellow Nydan at the stage start that I wouldn't make the sprint at the end if they would keep the race together. I could have won the green jersey as well as the yellow that year, but I wasn't going to risk the yellow first. As it happened, Quantum failed to keep the race together as the Canadian Jeff Pierce took a rare breakaway victory on the Champs-Élysées. Seven other riders crossed the finish line ahead of the peloton, which meant that the best stage placing that Van Poppel could hope for was ninth. With 25 points for the stage winner and a sliding scale of a point per place thereafter, ninth place offered Van Poppel 17 points, the precise number required to merely draw level with Roach. Van Poppel did indeed win the bunch sprint, which would have put him level with Roach on 257 points. But the Dutchman had been astute throughout the stage as he racked up a further 16 points in the five intermediate sprints of the day. Van Poppel therefore became the sixth rider to win the green jersey on his tour debut. Were you even born in 1987?
2: I was probably still in nappies, John. (laughs) Because I remember very clearly the 1987 tour. And I I loved watching Roche win. As well as, you know, that that day on La Plagne where the theatre of it was, was magnificent. But also... In in an era of big bruisers, he was just a really slight, beautiful peddler. You know, every time I get annoyed at Stephen Roach opening his gob, you know, Jack Thurston in The Bike Show did a a really good interview with Roach where he just sounded incredibly uncomfortable. Um, every time I get annoyed at that, I think back to those days, and that was that's one of my favourite tour wins ever. It was a magnificent thing, and you've managed to squeeze an Irishman in yet
1: again. <laughs> I, yeah, well, sorry about that again, but I, I just I thought it was interesting. I, I'd never um, never really knew this about Ro- that Roach came so close to winning the green jersey, which I mean you'd never really peg him as a green jersey contender, um, and I suppose that, that it, it kind of. Uh, it got me thinking about the green jersey, and in the Tour de France, you'd never really consider uh, the GC guys as contenders anymore. And uh, you know, like I said in a piece that the only guys that have won it as well as the yellow are Bernardino and Eddie Merckx, and that just shows you how hard it is. And uh, yeah. maybe just to clarify for, for anybody that doesn't know, in the Tour um, nowadays, anyway. Um, the flat stages, are are give, if you win a flat stage, you get more points towards the green jersey than you do for winning a mountain stage. So it is, even though it's not technically the sprinters competition, which is what it gets labelled as, It's it, kind of a misnomer. It, it is just a points classification. In the Tour, it is uh, tilted towards the sprinters so that the sprinters tend to win it. But that's not the case in the Giro. And I, I'm not actually sure about the Vuelta. I think it's in the Vuelta as well that all stages are given equal points, which is why... For instance, in the Giro this year, Joaquin Rodriguez won the points competition. You Hmm. know, you get riders like that, but that doesn't happen in the Tour. And uh, but to be fair, I think in 1987 there was equal points distribution. And uh, I suppose it just got me thinking as well. Like I was looking back through the top threes of the green jerseys over over the years, and like the last um, rider GC contender to be even in the top three in that competition was Miguel Indurain in 1995. I mean, it really has just become the domain. Of the sprinters, and I, you know, kind of was thinking like, well, what does this say about the Tour de France? And I think it kind of says two things: in that uh, sprint trains have gotten much, much more organised. Uh, you know, I think Mario, Mario Cipollini was very much a pioneer in that regard, and he, you know, he had a team that was completely built around him, and mm-hmm. and so sprints became much, much more. Not just the sprints, but the the whole stage leading up to the sprint, in that there were teams just in the Tour de France to make sure that the stage ended up being a bunch sprint. So that sprinters ended up having a lot more opportunities to to race for wins. So that that's yep. one thing that sprint trains becoming more organized. And the other thing I think is that G C riders became much more selective in the stages that they ended up on the front of the race. You know, if you if you look back at the at the results and even the YouTube footage of races in the eighties, like the G C guys, I mean like Finian and Eno and Lamont, you know, they're at the front of the race most days. Yeah,
2: you know, they, they 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 took and actually they're often up for a win at places where it's really surprising. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Like there'll be a little breakaway goes off the front and there's a there's a big name in there, and I I think uh, that, that 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 actually happened as recently as 1992. I think Greg Lemond got into a breakaway quite early on in the Tour de France, which is. It kind of unheard of now. Like you can't imagine Alberto Contador going off the front of the race on stage two next year. But that but that happened in, uh, as recently as nineteen ninety two. But I just I don't think that happens anymore. GC riders, you know, like Wiggins has it down to a fine art now. After this year, you just you pick a couple of days. These are the days that I'm going to you know go for the win, and 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 that's it. I mean Armstrong did it did that as well. You know that's how he did it. He just this is these this is the day. That's the day. That's where I'm going to win the tour. And for the rest of it, I'm staying in the bunch and doing nothing and mm-hmm. uh, i so i i just thought that was kind of uh, indicative in in the results of the green jerseys but uh, just going back to the piece just to clarify a couple of things that uh, <laughs> roach said there that um jean-paul van poppen was a quantum rider um i think he, i think the, the name of the team had actually changed but anyway and yellanoidam uh, the guy that roach talked to he was actually kind of a, a young rider so it, it might seem a little bit strange that he was talking to yellanoidam about doing doing the deal but uh, mm-hmm. Na- Naidam, I suppose he had won the yellow jersey during that race. He w- he had won the prologue, so maybe he had become the def- you know kind of a team leader throughout that race. But uh, yeah, I-, I just um, it was uh, I just thought it was interesting that Roach came so close to winning the green jersey, and he, he just he-, he backed away from it in the end. But um,
2: so I mean, you've talked about how the nature of the points in the Tour de France have, have fundamentally changed. Uh, you know the, the sport, and in fact, this is a young set of eyes because Scott and I have talked about the fact that you know we don't get the breakaways we used to get back in you know back in the good old days when the grass was greener and the sky was bluer. And the fact that the sprint trains are there—it's actually you—you've hit the nail on the head. It's because there are entire teams devoted to getting the sprinter to the front. So, do you think we'll ever see a team? You know, because you've got to be so dedicated to the yellow jersey now to take it away. You know, you can't just have. Um, you know, you can't you can't make it a, a dual thing as we saw this year with Sky. Do you think we'll ever see a team like um, you know Telecom, for example, who are capable of pulling off both? Well, yeah,
1: yeah. You mentioned Telecom. Like re, re, uh, Ulrich won the Tour in '97, and Z- Z- Eric Zabel won the green jersey. I think that's the last time that's ever happened, where two riders have, have mm-hmm. won it on the same team. And uh, yeah, like you know Cavendish was kind of duped into thinking that Team Sky were doing it this year, and it turns out that they hadn't pretty much no interest in in chasing the green for cavendish um i i don't know i suppose it depends on the rider that you end up with on the team like you know cavendish uh you know he he is capable of winning sprints when he's kind of left to his own devices uh i'm not sure if he would be capable of doing that for an entire tour de france and racking up enough points with no team helping him um, mm-hmm. But then you, you you have somebody like Peter Sagan who who won the green jersey this year, and you know Liquigas were riding for Vincenzo Nibali as well, who who uh, you know he came third, uh, which you know he, he he was never close to winning the tour, but you know he finished on the podium and they won the green jersey, which is as close as anybody's gotten in recent years to doing, um, the double of yellow and green. Um, I I I think. The game has changed now because the point system has changed. Uh, it used to be that there was a number of intermediate sprints throughout the stage; there was three or four or five, and you'd win a kind of a paltry amount of points for winning them. You'd win like six points, but now they've only got mm-hmm. one intermediate sprint where you get half the amount you do for winning the stage. And yeah, I think that has affected the ability of of this to happen. I, I think it's made it much more unattainable because uh, you know you need to be organised twice throughout the stage now. You need to organise your sprint train twice, and for a GC team to commit to doing that is, on her, you know, you can't. I don't think it would be foolish, yeah. wouldn't
2: it? I mean, let's face it; you'd be compromising your uh, your GC hopes yeah. by you know by splitting your resources. Yeah. I mean,
1: you're compromising them anyway by, by getting organised for the finish. But to have to do it twice is too much, I think. And uh, I mean, that's not to say it'll never happen. I mean, obviously like I say depending on the rider you, you could get a rider that, that is happy enough to do it on his own and of all riders Peter Sagan seemed strongest you know very strong to be to be capable of doing that although they've now gotten rid of their GC rider Nimbali's off to Astana so I'd say it'll be all for Sagan next year but uh, no I, I think it's gotten very very difficult to do the double but it, something else that kind of struck me as I was looking at the green jersey uh, results was that there's been I, the number's gone on me now whether it's six or seven maybe it's seven different winners in the last seven years I think mm-hmm. uh, I think it is yeah, like you've had I'll just run through it in my head maybe i get this right uh, Cavendish and then you had Pataki then Huchoft you know Frere Bone and McEwan
2: uh, there might be one more in there maybe it's seven and I should point out to listeners that you're doing that off the top of your yeah. head which is slightly scary <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well I might still have got that wrong but but um, <laughs> you know that's never happened before that there has been so, so many different winners in such a sh- short space of time and uh, i i just like the green jersey um it it, it has its own storyline obviously and i think maybe for the last couple of years that it may have they may have kind of gotten lost slightly like i know when eric zabel was winning it uh eric zabel he he had a monopoly on it but the story every year was can anybody beat eric zabel and that became the story and it's the same for any event that has a repeat winner it kind of it helps shape the competition and it all of a sudden it, the story is can this guy be beaten and and, mm-hmm. and that was the case for for when eric zabel was winning it and like for a number of years there when uh Kushoft beat Cavendish and then Pataki beat Cavendish and then eventually Cavendish won it. The story was, can Cavendish win the green jersey and how come he hasn't won it yet? How, how is he going to win it? Like And and, and that's that, that was the story was can Cavendish win it? And now he's won it. You know, uh, even the year he won it, you know, his nearest challenger was was Rojas, the Spanish guy, and he never really was a, a, a genuine challenger. And last year, Peter Sagan had it sewn up two weeks into the race and, and I mean, yeah. that was a story in itself. But, you know, Peter Sagan, he was, you know, the second youngest winner ever, and he won it on his f- f- first Tour de France, and it was a brilliant story. But the actual competition uh, was still a little bit lacking because it was sewn up so early. And it's it's been a while since we had a real, real ding dong battle. Probably Robbie McEwen against Baden Cook in 2003 was probably the last one where it was really, really, uh, you know, uh, chop and change in a ding dong thing. And uh, I'm really looking forward to next year because I think now. The Cavendish story has kind of played out. He's won it. He, he's a winner. Peter Sagan has won it. He's a winner. And now the two of them are coming head-to-head. Cavendish is going to have a team built around him. I, I assume at Omega Farm a quick step, he's going to have everybody geared towards winning the green jersey for him. And, and Peter Sagan is now freed up. Nibali's gone off to Astana. Uh, uh, maybe... I I don't think Liquigas have signed any sort of serious contender. They still have Basso. I can't see him challenging, and so Peter Sagan is probably going to have a whole team at his disposal as well. So the story next year, I think, is going to be fascinating because they are two different types of riders. Also, you know, Sagan is is kind of can mop up points in mountains and breakaways where Cavendish probably won't. And I I, I think it's it's great for the green jersey that these two massive names are are going to come head to head next year.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've got a very, very fast tortoise and an incredibly fast hare, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, they are that different. It's funny, you know, Nibali going to Astana, one of the reasons he gave, I was reading this morning, is that uh, Cannondale, as it's going to be, um, are, it's the team's too American. He does realise he'll be on a specialised bike next year. Yeah. I mean, that's mental. But the other thing is, there's a really good business plan there. Because when Reese, you know, gets chucked out of cycling, we should start up the This Week in Cycling History team, and we need to sign Contador and Sagan, because then we could do the double. <laughs> yeah, t- t- sounds like the start of a business plan, all right, yeah. We'll need a few bob though, so we'll have to have a whip round. Now, we're going to finish this week with, um, well, the last story. We'll clearly chunter on about it afterwards. But I think this is my favourite story since we started doing this podcast. <laughs> it's a brilliant story about Raymond Poulidor and Jacques Oncadil. In 1968, Raymond Poulidor beat Jacques Anquetil without even
0: turning a pedal. Poulidor had spent his career being beaten by his compatriot and arch-rival Anquetil, but at a track meet in Madrid in 1968, Poulidor got one over on Anquetil in the most unorthodox fashion. Poulidor had just finished a pursuit race against Julio Jimenez, but afterward he declared himself sick. He hadn't been feeling great before the racing began, and a particularly high banking at the Madrid track led to seasick-like symptoms for Poulidor. There were still plenty of events remaining on the programme, but Poulidor had to approach the organisers and admit that he was unable to continue. He even offered to forego his appearance fee. But the organisers were not happy. Although Ancatil's career was winding down, the rivalry between himself and Poulidor had never waned. Ancatil was also at the track, and to see the two French riders go head-to-head was the major reason why most of the crowd had bothered to attend. The rivalry had been hyped in the pre-race promotion. With Poulidor unable to continue, the race organiser had an idea. Poulidor sat in the changing room under the track and in walked the race organiser with a little-known Spanish cyclist by his side. The race organiser had dressed the Spaniard in Poulidor's Mercier jersey and had given him Poulidor's race number and crash hat. The sensational aspect was that the Spaniard looked remarkably like Poulidor. What was even more remarkable was that he was an excellent track racer and he ended up beating Jacques Ancatil several times throughout the track meet. Poulidor said about the incident, in the dim light, the fans couldn't get a clear view. They thought he was me, and I actually became more popular with the fans. Finally, I had beaten Ankatil. Without even getting on my bike, I was a huge hit. The fans were ecstatic, and the organiser even more so, as he ended up paying me double my appearance fee.
2: That is just bloody mental.
0: <laughs> it's great. I mean, d- d- it's how did you get away with it? Oh, well, like it's
1: a different era, you know. I mean, there was no video cameras. There was no big screen TV showing you the close-up action the way you get now nowadays. Um, yeah, I suppose they could just do it because they could. And uh, I mean, I, I I don't know. Like the the article I read where this piece was in it. I mean, it was a little bit scant on details. I don't know who the Spanish writer was. I couldn't find any other details about this. Spanish track meet. Uh I mean we're taking Pulidor's word for it. He, he he was the guy who who was given all the quotes in this article that I found but uh I mean I'm I'm sure I'm sure he's not lying but uh yeah I suppose it, it's just uh, the 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 function of a different era. I mean you could you would obviously you would never get away with that these days. This camera's everywhere and um I I suppose I just um fr- first of all it's it's a great story. Uh second of all I I put it in because it's actually today the the date we record is uh, it's twenty five years today since Jacques Anquetil died, which I thought was maybe poignant, putting in an Anquetil story, and uh, just thirdly, it kind of it got me thinking about this different era of of cycling, and um, uh, I was I was it was put to mind by um, I listened to a, a, another podcast. Dare I mention it? Um,
2: sheep <laughs> she and you, much sheep you. It
1: was um, it was a, a podcast that was to go hand in hand with this new book that's coming out called the Cycling Anthology, which is a um, a series of essays written by some of the best cycling writers that are around today, and uh, Daniel Freib was speaking on the podcast, and he had written this article. I, I I don't think the book is out yet, or maybe it's only out in the last couple of days. Anyway, I haven't I haven't had a chance to read it, but he was speaking about this article that he, he wrote for uh for the book, and it's about this kind of the theory of the or the the notion of cyclonomics.
2: It's the, it's the money yeah the theory, money ball it? yeah
1: the, the pursuit of analyzing data and it, it yeah like you say it stemmed from baseball and this this uh, you know this this team in baseball who adopted this uh sabermetrics they called it and uh there's been books written about football about it called you know soccernomics and all this and it, it spilled over into different sports and daniel free was just wondering how it would work for cycling and uh you you know um, just going back to this era of the 60s, and, and uh, you know, there, there, there wasn't cameras everywhere, and we relied on you know the flowery prose of cycling writers who you know spent a lot of time. You know, if you read articles of that time, you know, there's descriptions of the jerseys and the stadium and. You know descriptions and descriptions and descriptions of everything. Whereas you know, th- I think cycling writing and writing in general has moved on since then. In that there's much more focus on tactics now and backstories and interesting tidbits of, excuse me, writers' careers and their their families and you know all this kind of foundation to what actually happened. And you know the the requirement to discuss the description of of stuff isn't there anymore because we can see it. And mm-hmm. um, you know D- Daniel Freed was kind of he 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 mentioned this in his in in this podcast and that you know you can't cycling is so strange in that you don't see everything you don't you you barely see a portion of what's going on and, you know, for football, it can be analysed to death. You can see the entire pitch. You can see every single player for the entire duration of the event, the 90 minutes. You can track everything they do from the amount of passes they make to the amount of runs they make to the amount of kilometres they clock up. You know, everything. Everything can be monitored. Whereas in cycling, actually, you know, you, I mean, you can monitor their power output, but you can't actually monitor what they're doing visually. And and that that's a big... Uh, flaw in anybody who tries to apply cyclonomics or, or whatever you want to call it to cycling and you know it, it, again it got me thinking about this bygone era and i mean it's not actually that different now in racing when you're watching it i mean it is obviously it is different but it's still limited in that uh if it's and it is this especially becomes apparent in stages of grand tours where uh, they go up the really steep mountains like uh, the zoncalon or the uh, um What's the other one? The Angleroo.
2: Mortarola yeah, or the Yeah,
1: All these climbs where it just blows the race apart. There is no peloton. Everybody's going up in dribs and drabs. And it's in the, on those stages, it becomes abundantly clear that they're actually, you know, you, you kind of think that there's massive coverage of this race, but really, there's probably only about five cameras
2: following it. And, you know, if there's... Think actually, I mean, on top of that, think about the number of times just in this last year where you've tuned into Eurosport. You know, gagging for some some racing, and through no fault of their own, all you get is a cloudy shot of the finish yeah, line. and and this, you know, there are, there are crucial bits of races that we've missed because the attack, you know, the attack went either before the coverage started, it happened in the Vuelta this year, you know, with Contador, yeah. and, or you know, it's just too cloudy for the the technology to operate or too strong yeah, and
1: it happened in the Tour of Lombardy as well. You know, for the for the last thirty kilometers of that race, when Rodriguez attacked and was away, it was very very. Uh, you know, stop start to, to like you say the shot at the finish line, waiting for the helicopter relay to start working again, and and that's what you're dealing with, and you know I actually I think it happened um uh for Bjarne Rees's, uh stage uh tour winning stage when he was racing to Cestriere on that shortened stage I I I think um the coverage started and you know. There was no coverage of Reese's attack, and we were taking the commentators' word for it that Reese was up the road and he had this gap, and this is what's happening. We can assure you, but there was no live pictures. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you're watching a cycling race, I, I, I actually I, I thought about it before we started recording, and I struggled to think of another event that you watch on television, and there's ads in the middle of it where you can actually miss some action. I mean, obviously, with football, there's ads at half time. In American football, there's ads all the time. But you're not actually missing any of the action. Whereas with cycling, mm-hmm. you know, Eurosport, obviously, they have to take their ad breaks. But if they take an ad break, I mean, there's no there's no knowing if if, if that's when the race-winning move is going to happen. So you can miss these things. And it just makes it so difficult to track what's going on. And to hark back to what we talked about last week with um, the Matt Bramier situation and the whole farce of the UCI points and how... Uh, domestiques are kind of being shafted by this system you know uh, again how do you measure how effective a domestique is when you can't even see what they're doing and I I think really you can only know how good a domestique is when you've raced with him when he's on a team Mm -hmm. and you know this guy is actually you know he was fetching bottles. He was, you know, waiting for this guy to to change his wheel. He, he he dropped back to that group, gave your man a wheel, waited, cycled back up. You know, he was up and down like a yo-yo all day. None of that gets recorded on video. You know, how can another team come along and judge this guy as a domestique? They, they, they kind of can't unless they're you know unless word of mouth and they're talking to their previous team, and you know it 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 only kind of again highlights the fact that uh, domestiques are. First of all, they were absolutely required, and second of all, the the notion of how good they are is almost unmeasurable, and mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it, 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 again it just um, it highlights how poorly they're being treated by the UCI's point system.
2: It's I mean that's that's a cracking point. I mean I'm I'm still vaguely vaguely angry about Matt Bramier actually, and I'm I mean that's made me think the number of times where I've heard David Harmon and again. This isn't their fault, you know. They've got to do ads. David Harmon saying, and while you, you know, while we were on a break, this happened, yeah. or you know, so and so crashed, or whatever. Um, it, it's a funny old sport, isn't it? It's still, it's all still slightly nebulous and mysterious, even in the twenty first century. Yeah,
1: which is which is kind of good as well. You know, it's a, it's a the mystery is a is a. You know, it's an intriguing point of it as well that you don't see everything, and and uh, there is that element of mystery as well. But just one more,
2: th- I don't, I we'd actually, I we'd, I we'd alter that by saying we only want mystery in the races, you know, not in the kind of doctors and, and governments of the sports. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. <laughs> But uh, just one more thing that that kind of struck me as well. Um, I, I'm sure we talked about it before, is that how great is it that you know at a track meet in in 1968 there was you know Raymond Pulido and Jacques Anquetil and Julio Jimenez you know you, you you would obviously you don't get that anymore and uh, you know it kind of it, it got me thinking as well like why and i suppose the the answers are kind of obvious in, in that uh riders get paid a lot more now and they don't need this money. you know i spoke in the piece about Pulidor and uh, his his appearance fee and really that's the only reason he was there was to pick up his appearance fee and it's in in the piece I, I read where Pulidor was quoting this he he was uh, he was gutted to have to offer to to, to um, hand over his appearance fee for not being able to do it i mean that was clearly the only reason he was doing it but riders don't really i, I you know for the most part they're more financially stable now and uh, you know there's a minimum wage there wasn't back then and uh, so first of all there's money riders probably don't need to do it second of all there's the, the risk of injury and that the, the 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 money that sponsors and teams put into these riders i suppose they're not willing to risk their star guy anymore like I
2: think I mean think of Merck's flying on the track with his Derny Rider dead yeah yeah I mean that was crazy I mean, just, and like
1: Ro- Roach um injured himself uh kind of you know it ultimately ended his career that injury uh in in 1986 when he he crashed on the track in the offseason I mean I can't I just mm-hmm. can't imagine for one second uh Dave Brailsford allowing Bradley Wiggins to to uh to ride uh, the the madness of a six day race with probably a partner he he maybe w- wouldn't have ridden with before, uh, r- risking everything that they've that mm-hmm. they've built up this year you know just just for a few bob on on a track in Ghent you know and and actually just sorry just off the top of my head I think. Wiggins was pegged to ride in Ghent and he pulled out for that very reason maybe maybe, maybe I'm wrong in that but uh, yeah I, I, I think that uh, that happened that he wasn't allowed ride uh, the track even though he wanted to but um, yeah it, it's a pity it doesn't happen anymore but um, it's uh, it's it's still a fantastic story that your man got away with uh, being uh, being Poulidor for the
2: day my, my colleague in the, the the velocast, Scott, is actually in Glasgow at the the Chris Hoy uh, Velodrome, covering the UCI uh, World Cup this weekend uh, with with proper press accreditation. A move forward for the velocast. Um, I'm at home because one, we only got one press pass, and and two, it's my eldest boy's birthday, and he's he's down from Stirling. But I'm really glad I'm at home because that actually is I've really enjoyed recording today that's been a cracking show and thanks for the conversation Gillian, brilliant mate no, no problem now if you want to follow Killian on Twitter which is the best place to, to keep in touch with us because we're both extremely active on there uh, he's at Irish Peloton uh, and I'm at W John Galloway and we'll be back uh, very soon with another This Week in Cycling History <laughs>